Hello and welcome to Meet My Potential podcast, where we talk to leaders from around the world to inspire and to ignite your potential. This is your host, Deepa Natarajan, that Indian girl from Toulouse in France. And today we're going to talk about what is spiritual leadership with Sam House. And before we get started, if you are looking to make changes and wondering, how can I make sustainable change happen? Then I might just have the perfect solution for you. Just head over to meetmypotential.com slash webinar. I've created a 45-minute masterclass on how you can make sustainable change happen. So that's meetmypotential.com slash webinar. All right. Today we have with us Sam House calling in from US, lives quite close, a little bit north of New York. Sam House has been actively engaged in guiding people for many years. Sam has been heading experiential-based leadership development programs across the world in diverse settings like in corporate boardrooms to federal prisons and everything that goes in between. And that's exactly how I met uh, Sam, well, not in the prison, well, I met Sam in a leadership program and he was my leadership coach there. Formerly a psychotherapist and a social worker, Sam has extensive experience. Let's welcome Sam. Hello and welcome, Sam, to this 100th episode here on Meet My Potential podcast. How are you doing today? Uh, Wonderfully. It's great to be here and what a treat to be your 100th guest. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for those of you who are listening, Sam has been uh, my leadership coach and he's also been my coach for a couple of years. And thank you, Sam, for inspiring me to get on this journey to create this podcast and create this waterhole of resources. Um, It's definitely been a journey to actually start connecting with my own internal voice and start connecting with the wisdom that is there in people like you and everybody else and getting them to share. Thank you so yeah, much. You're so welcome. And anytime that you're um, engaged in a project such as this large project that you're involved in, then uh, everyone else will benefit from it. So um, it's a real honor to, to be serving in this way with you. Thank you. I want to talk a little bit about, in fact, I want to go into the depths and, you know, uh, uh, no, what is spiritual leadership for you? How would you define that? Spiritual leadership. Well, uh, I, right off the top of my head, uh, when I think of spiritual leadership as uh, the sort of leadership with a very broad lens. Uh, It's more than simply uh, looking at what needs to be done as a leader to achieve a specific outcome for uh, the organization I might be associated with or the group I happen to be leading, Mm -hmm. but rather uh, what is the thing that needs to be done or what is the state of um, the organization I am in that is aligned with something bigger than just the organization or the team that's connected to something um, outside of just the work immediately in front of us. There's a holistic quality to this um, spiritual leadership, I think. When you say something connected to something bigger and there is something holistic about it, like these are the two words that stuck to me. And when you say something bigger, do you mean by having more environmental impact or taking, having a bigger sense of purpose in terms of what are we here to do in this world? What do you mean by that actually? I think having a a, a strong sense of purpose about what I'm here for to do in this world is important. What I'm not talking about is that, Bigger does not have to be um, a larger conquest, a bigger organization, more sales. I can be on a spiritual leadership journey and be, con- you know, a custodian in a school and um, be absolutely committed to serving a bigger game. So it's not about achieving in the way that we typically think of in the West of. Um, the need to always grow and be bigger. It's really in a sense of being connected to um, a bigger, I quote in quotes, a bigger world that is beyond 
how we normally define success and um, sort of corporate well-being. Nothing wrong with growing in an organizational or corporate context. Mm -hmm. It's just that in my mind, that's not the way that spiritual leadership occurs. Hmm. I'm going to quote my mom a lot here because she's been <laughs> <laughs> she's been uh, an inspiration to me. And uh, sometimes I shy away from talking to her because you know if I talk to her for five minutes, it just means a six month transformation program for me. So, <laughs> but uh, but one of the things that she used to say is uh, do your duty and leave the rest to God. Uh, but I don't want to tie in religion to spirituality here. But if I take that message, like just do your duty, do your best, and don't focus on the results, is that something that you're pointing to here? Yes and no. I think, I, I, first of all, I so appreciate your mother's wise words. <laughs> and if I would translate the, the last part of that sentence, leave the rest to God, you could simply say, do your duty and surrender or yield to what needs to come forward. Um, and I think that there's a huge uh, value and truth to the power of that. Uh, we often think that we can actually control things down to the most sort of minute level. And that is really a function of our ego, I, I believe. And so uh, doing our duty and then allowing for and yielding to what needs to unfold and being receptive to then the cues that we receive as we as we allow it to unfold to be receptive to those cues is really important and then there's nothing wrong with holding a goal or measuring success it's just that we need to uh measure success in one hand while allowing for new information or new discovery or new exploration or uh, a new direction to occur in the other hand. And both hands are important. Hmm. I love what you're saying. It's a sense of like moving towards something and yet at the same time being open to move towards something else. So it's not that I have arrived and I'm reaching this place where I've reached my goals. I've, you know, this is the target that I wanted to achieve, whatever be the target for anybody, whatever be the goals. I've achieved this and at the same time and open and receptive to any information that comes my way. Is that yeah, I think that's crucial. And I think as, as humans, we often forget the importance of doing exactly that. Instead, we enter into a, a smaller world within ourselves, thinking that we must know exactly what it is we're doing and how to achieve it and what it's supposed to look like when it's done. And it, it is a little bit of a Forgive me, but it's a little narcissistic mm -hmm. or grandiose to suggest that that's possible. <laughs> I just don't think we have the, the bandwidth or the wherewithal as humans to really, really know all of that and control all of those out, the outcome in that way. Mm -hmm. um, there's a saying, uh, control is an illusion. What's your take on that? I believe that completely. Uh, and all you have to do is have been a parent of a young child to know that that's true. <laughs> Here's a simple example that I that I experienced in my own life. My my uh, daughter or my son is sitting in their high chair next to the dining room table, and they have a tray in front of them, and I place some uh, cereal, some Cheerios, on the tray, and um, they are fascinated by them. They pick them up one by one, look at them, and then throw them on the floor. <laughs> and I say, uh, please don't throw the Cheerios on the floor. They look at me, pick up a Cheerio, and throw it on the floor again. <laughs> and this, <laughs> this little theater goes on for quite some time, very possibly with my, uh, my voice raising a bit further and further. And it's not until I can actually, uh, you know, put my hands on their arms to physically restrain them from throwing one more cherry on the floor, that's when I'm in control. Everything short of that, even if I'm successful in convincing them not to throw the Cheerio on the floor, mm -hmm. it, that's done by agreement. <laughs> 
It's not me, me as a large parent controlling my small child. And I think that that's such a beautiful illusion or, or a beautiful example of the illusion of control that we often have, that because I attempt something, unless I'm physically manipulating it, I'm not controlling it. I'm in a relationship with it. And the outcome occurs accordingly. Hmm. Beautiful example. We, every day, in fact, we believe we control so many things. I wake up in the morning and I plan how my day is going to be. Now, when I wake up and I plan my day, I think I'm in control of my day. But, and I think I'm in control of my thoughts. But actually, when I, at the end of the day, when I only finish half the things that I wanted to, not because I set myself up for high expectations, but when I only end up doing some of the things I'm unable to explain how I wasn't able to control my thoughts and my own actions. Yeah, it's it's interesting because um, I think there is a discipline and a practice that's involved in um, developing more self-control. Mm-hmm. And I think that there is a lot to be learned from learning how do I um, develop the ability to direct my thoughts and my emotions in a in a life affirming way that doesn't mean that i will always achieve what i set myself out to mm-hmm. uh, to to achieve at the beginning of my day but there's a way that i can in fact learn how to exhibit um self control and it begins i think with the ability to observe the self rather than to be inside of the experience Without, with no possibility of being able to stand outside of myself and observe myself. So there's a, that's, a, to me, a key starting point. Beautiful. So somehow I feel, correct me if I'm wrong, I get this notion that spiritual leadership some leads us to us being able to observe ourselves. Like we can't get to that level if we can't, bring ourselves out of our own experience and start to actually look at ourselves and analyze how we are. Exactly. And, and it, to me, that quality of being able to observe ourselves is to observe without judgment. Mm. Because to simply notice what I just did, for example, let's say I had an exchange with my spouse and I raised my voice and I noticed, oh, I raised my voice and then I have immediately afterwards a judgment about how wrong or bad I was in raising my voice. That is not an observation alone. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's an observation of the judgment. And so this ability to, in a neutral way, hmm. observe the self, and I think ultimately develop the capacity to also appreciate the self, um, gives us this ability to... Um, create a little bit of distance between um, what we're involved in, in our interactions and our thoughts, and um, a little bit of distance between that and where we stand as an observer and as an appreciator. What's important about this? What's important about being able to observe ourselves? I think failure to do that is what creates the world that we're currently in. Today mm-hmm. in the United States is election day, yeah. November 3rd, 2020. And if I look at the political rancor that exists between the two main parties, what it often seems like is um, uh, two children throwing stones at each other, thinking that they are right and the other is wrong. Mm. And that's the state of non-observant, <laughs> mm. non-observant engagement. Mm. If, if, however, one could, each of those sides could step out of that and notice their level of attachment to their point of view, their level of enmity and anger towards the other, and they can, through that, just that neutral observation, and then also through a sense of appreciating. And what there is to appreciate in that moment is appreciate the learning moment that is here for me 
as I hold anger and antipathy toward the other, to hold appreciation for, oh, that's me when I'm not um, holding a more neutral, removed place within myself. Of course, it's only human that I would experience that. So I hold appreciation for the humanness of that. And I, and, I, and I hold appreciation for the moment that that gives me to learn how to step back and say, oh, hold it. How do I hold the other person over there as also a sacred human being and not as an object to vilify? And to me, that is a game changer in how we, we uh, navigate through our world. <laughs> Beautiful. And, you know, to hold the humanness of the other person first requires, like you mentioned, unattachment, like be not be attached to the outcome and to that goal and to the direction and, and the path that one is taking. That's right. And also to recover when we become attached, because it's only human mm. to become attached over and over and over again all day long through our lives. Um, <laughs> what a cycle, right? <laughs> I mean, that is so true for me. And I, I consider that I've been you know, dedicating myself to a, a certain practice for a long time. But it's still um, an, a, a requirement for me to recover to a more unattached place. Beautiful. So I don't want to actually put down a formula for those of you who are listening. I don't want to say these are the 10 aspects of spiritual leadership, but we're just talking <laughs> and having a wonderful conversation here with Sam. So, but I just want to pause here and recollect some of the key things that Sam just mentioned. So number one is like, observe yourself and observe yourself without judgment. And the second thing that he mentioned was appreciate yourself and not only yourself, but appreciate the other person, especially someone who is completely uh, against your perspective, someone who holds a completely different point of view. Like how do you hold the other person in appreciation? And then the third point that he mentioned was be unattached. And of course, we're all going to fall prey to getting attached. And it's all a question of how do we become aware of that, notice that and recover from that process and be completely human. And human is include everybody. Did I get that right so far? Yeah, Sam? The, the, thank you for summarizing so beautifully. The one thing I would just further add with regard yeah. to that aspect of appreciation whether it's appreciation of the self or appreciation of something outside of the self, appreciation in this context does not mean to like. Like, oh, if I hold appreciation for mm -hmm. the person for whom I'm in a, in a little bit of a struggle or a battle with, that mm -hmm. means I have to like them. No, I may continue to struggle to find ways to like them in all kinds of ways, mm -hmm. but there is something nonetheless that I can find to appreciate about them that is a gift to me that I need to learn further for myself. And mm -hmm. that's the state of appreciation that I'm referring to. I think it's otherwise uh, rather one-dimensional to, to uh, collapse this notion of appreciation must mean that I have to agree with or like mm -hmm. someone else or another thing. I'd like to bring an example. I was interacting with somebody who, one a person who has written like many books, a person who's extremely knowledgeable. And I found my conversation with him to be quite arrogant. Like I felt this notion of arrogance from his end. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it was hard for me to actually stay and appreciate in that moment because arrogance is something that I've always wanted to run from. And although like humility is not my greatest trait, <laughs> I, I can say that, you know, all the lessons that I had learned about curiosity and be curious, stay and ask questions, I found it hard to do that. So how can I stay with appreciation in that moment? Uh, oof, it's great. Well, uh, let me ask you this, mm -hmm. uh, if I could. Uh, what? So here you are. You've set this up beautifully. This 
fellow is acting in a highly arrogant way. It's really hooked you and gotten you in a reactive state. And you're now asked to appreciate something. Let's exactly. him or something. And so let's slow this down a bit and say, in this moment of your awareness of your being hooked, what can you appreciate about yourself? That I was in conversation for 45 minutes, despite the fact that I got um, hooked in the first 15 minutes, that I Mm. stayed. My resilience is what I could appreciate. So you stayed. Great. Anything else that you noticed? I noticed I was trying different angles, except curiosity. (laughs) Mm. So something to appreciate could be appreciating the importance of of increased curiosity as a practice for you, especially when you're in a situation faced with someone who presents with arrogance. Right. There's a lesson and an opportunity for you. Oh, even in this moment where I reacted maybe not in the best way, Mm -hmm. what I can appreciate is the constant need to learn to be more curious and to find ways to unhook myself from this moment. Mm. Now, forget about whether you can find anything to appreciate about him. Right. (laughs) That That may be a bridge too far at this moment. Yeah. But imagine that you can find this way to eventually hold yourself in appreciation. And now you encounter down the road this same fellow's arrogance over and over and over again as you are learning to hold yourself with more curiosity and more appreciation. I'm just imagining what you might be able to experience eventually with him is more detachment toward, not detachment, more unattachment towards him when he's acting in an arrogant way. So instead of him being a, 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 a disturbing bee that's about to sting you, you see him as a little bit of a meddlesome fly or, uh, oh, that's a little gnat in my awareness. And mm. I just, I'm able to wave that away. And as you talk, I think I see uh, like why that irritation lasted after that call for about the next five to six hours was because I couldn't get to, I had in my mind a goal where I wanted to get to, (laughs) (laughs) right? And I couldn't get there in my conversation. And so that, I guess, was what annoyed me, actually. Mm. And maybe a question that you could be asking is, um, in the context of what I need to learn for myself, how important is it for me to to have needed to reach that goal in that conversation at all costs, you know? How much emphasis was I playing on the importance of that? Is there anything that I could have learned by not doing that? Thank you so much for sharing that. That's such a wonderful question. We're all constantly moving towards a goal, moving towards accomplishing something. Uh, At least I know a lot of highly driven people are driven to actually get somewhere. And so this, you know, how much emphasis do I actually hold into getting somewhere, into getting something done, also creates a lot of attachment. And that creates the pain, in fact, in return. It sure does. And again, that's not to say that getting someplace and reaching a goal is unimportant. It is important. It's just that how do I hold that in balance with the need to stay present with myself and to learn what I need to learn? Mm. Both are important. Mm. Beautiful. So how do I how do I accelerate towards going somewhere, getting something done, and also at the same time accelerate my capacity to learn and stay unattached? Yes. F- fantastic. Sam, what's like, like I'm moving a little, shifting sure. gears a little bit here. Go ahead. And, um, well, what, when you talk about spirituality, like why is spirituality so important for us? Well, it takes us from a place of believing that we are, to use a Simon and Garfunkel song that says, I am a rock, I am an island, moving from a place of seeing ourselves as essentially freestanding, alone objects in the world, 
to seeing ourselves as in a constant relationship with everything in our world. And so when I can begin to break out of this sense that um, it's only me alone, or we often make this up in romantic relationships, mm-hmm. uh, I, I am only complete when I am with you. <laughs> So, so, uh, or I am only successful when I am with, when I get uh, feedback from my job that tells me I'm good. Mm-hmm. And that is a, it, it's still an evidenced gather, evidence gathering, evidence based way of considering ourselves in our relationship with our world rather than starting with the, um, the understanding that I am always in relationship with my world in a huge and powerful way. And when we can move from that sense of isolation and aloneness to a sense of constant relationship with our world, um, we are on a spiritual quest, I I believe. Hmm. So I know we tend to believe that I am my relationships or I am my results or I am the genius or the smartness that I possess. And therefore we become experts. And this is all evidence-based, but it's moving away from that and looking at how am I in relationship to this universe, to the planet, to where I'm living? To the people in my life and to to myself, but also to the, you said, to the planet. So that strikes me as being connected to my natural world as well. Right. And so where does this notion of like something mystical, something cosmic, where, how does that fit in here? Yeah, to those high achievers, this is an important question. <laughs> 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 if I'm a high achiever working on this, listening to this, I might say, well, why in the world is a mystical question being asked right now? That's got nothing to do with what needs to be done right now. Yes, this is becoming very woohoo. <laughs> Um, I, I, to me, there's a real practical way of thinking about it, and that is that mysticism often gets this reputation for being otherworldly. And my view of it is when I can consider myself as being in relationship with everything in my world, then I am, uh, uh, then I can see myself as part of an interconnected web of life part of a whole, an interconnected whole. And when I can think in terms of wholeness versus separateness, then I am at least embarked on a, a if you want to call it, a path mm-hmm. of mysticism. Mm-hmm. All mystical traditions, if you look in, in religious traditions, whether it be, um, you know, the Sufi mystics mm-hmm. in, 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 in Islam, you look at the Hindu mystics in Hinduism, you look at the Christian mystics in Christianity, or you look at some of the most powerful earth-based wisdom traditions, such as the Kalahari Bushmen, or so many of the Native American tribes, they all have one thing in common, that they see themselves as being in a relationship with their entire world, and that relationship is a pathway of understanding oneness or wholeness with their world mm-hmm. rather than separateness. That's mm-hmm. the mystical tradition, as far as I'm concerned. Mm. I want to share a little example here. Um, when I was a child, my mother used to ask me to look at the birds while she was feeding me. And she used to ask me questions like, uh, what's that? That's a sparrow. That's a bird. What bird is it? It's a sparrow. Where is it going? It's going to that tree. What's in that tree? Oh, the little ones. And oh, what is she doing? Oh, she's getting some food for them. So uh, like the way I learned words, um, this is a book. Oh, whose book is it? It's dad's. Oh, uh, what's written on the first page? Oh, his name. And so what is his name? Oh, T.R. Natrogen. What does T stands for? Oh, that's his grandfather's name. So everything is in relation to anything else. And it's not a book of words where, you know, kids in Europe learn, oh, this is a book, this is an umbrella, and we see a picture and we see an, um, a title attached to that picture. So the way of learning in India was completely different for me. Let me make sure I'm understanding you. For example, they show you, you're, you're a, a learning to read in the Western tradition. They show you a picture of an umbrella and there's an equal sign and then there's the word umbrella there exactly 
that's the sort of uh, separated way of learning about umbrella as opposed to the way that you learned about umbrella through this relational Mm -hmm. pathway. Did I get that right? Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) There's a real difference, isn't there? (laughs) Exactly. And so somehow through education, through years, there's this notion and a feeling of being connected. And I remember... uh, I remember when I was seven, my mother, I was punished outside the school and I was standing outside my class because I was talking in class and (laughs) a woman walks by and she puts her hand on my head and she said, forgive this child. You must go back inside the class now and sit down. A day later, I learned that it was mother Teresa. And years later, I kind of connected to that moment, which felt like when she put her hand on my head, and I'm not making this up, I know in that moment, I felt something, a transfer of energy. I felt something powerful happening. And now when I think back to it and I relate, yes, it was Mother Teresa who I spoke to. Um, you know, now where does the transfer of energy happen over there? Like, how is that <laughs> feeling of feeling um, a sense of energy? Like, where does that come from? I'm laughing because I go, whoa, that's a, that's a big question. <laughs> um, yeah, I, uh, I can make something up in response yeah. to it. Yeah. <laughs> there's a, there's a, a book now written in the 90s, I think, by David Hawkins called Power Versus Force. And he talks about kinesiology, which is when you, let's say you hold your arm out and you press down on it. You, press, mm-hmm. you ask yourself a question, uh, am I male or am, am I male? And you press down on it. And if you're male, your arm will be able to resist being pressed, be, being pushed down. If you answer, if you're male and you answer, I am female, and you apply the same amount of pressure, your arm will not be able to hold it up and it, there will be, uh, and it'll be weakened. So the, David Hawkins used this understanding of the body's understanding of what is true and what is not for people to explore are the sort of the evolution of our consciousness from a very low level to a very high level. And he put it at this on his, on a zero to 1000 scale. And he said that it through testing thousands and thousands of people that I think I've got my, my numbers, right. Um, uh, that when we reach about the level of 500 on this zero to 500, zero to 1000 scale, it means that we are, essentially emanating a consistent message of love, love towards ourselves and our planet. It doesn't mean that we are uh, above human experience. We're still very much human. It's just that in general, we're able to emanate this experience of love. Down at around, I think it's 150 or 200, people who are measured at resonating in that level are actually in a life-diminishing cycle. Um, they, it's very difficult at that stage of consciousness to learn and grow and heal. So um, the more we can practice some version of appreciation, observation, unattachment, uh, and ultimately f- forgiveness and love, the higher we move up that scale. And mm. he goes to, on to posit that um, great figures in our, in our human history, Jesus, the Buddha, Lao Tzu in the Taoist tradition, you know, emanated, uh, emanated at the level of um, 900 or 1,000 or something wow. like that. And so, um, I, I, coming back to your Mother Teresa story, I'm imagining Mother Teresa emanating uh, at a very powerful mm. and high level on that scale. And that when that occurs, you know, she can put her hand on your head and you will feel a, a resonant power in that. Mm. The other, just one other thing about that. Um, I think everyone has had the experience of when you're in the presence of someone who is a deeply loving presence, you can feel how different it is to be in their presence as opposed to someone who's um, the opposite of that. 
And so it, I don't think you have to be with Mother Teresa to have a sense of what it's like to experience the emanation that comes from another human being in this kind of way. Beautiful. Thank you. We can all be emanating more love in this world. Yes. Yeah. One of my teachers said, your highest goal is as, as a light being, the, the, there's a whole conversation about we are made of nothing more than light. Our job as a light meaning is to, light being is to emanate love. And I, uh, that's one to aspire to. <laughs> <laughs> so like, you know, these instances, right. Uh, where I felt that energy and I, you know, I always connect dots back and I'm, and today, the work that I'm doing, coaching, helping people, working with people, uh, and this little dot of me having met Mother Teresa, like all this connects back to, to who I have become today. And sometimes we have these incidents or, you know, some something strange or bizarre happens. You're walking in the forest. You somehow get a lightning message that this is this the decision that you need to take on your project. And you get these messages from strange places and mm. somehow they're the right ones. Like, although there is no data to back up that decision, right. yeah. messages yeah. come from within us, from within our gut, uh, from our intuition and from nature or through meditation. Um, so how can we, like, do we need to, first question is like, do we need to tap into them? Like, for me, it's a yes, but then like, like, tell us, <laughs> like, like, you know, from your point of view, like, do we need to tap into them? And if so, like, how do we use that information and how often? And yeah. <laughs> it's a, that's a, that's a powerful question. Um, the answer as far as I'm concerned, I agree with you. Yes, we do need to, if we want to evolve in our consciousness as human beings. There's a here's a quick little story. Um, my wife was at the dinner table uh, with our two kids. I was not there, and or no, she was at the dinner table with our son, and our daughter was um, traveling. She was a young kid, and she was traveling. And uh, all of a sudden, my wife had this a sudden fear that. Uh, for my daughter's well-being and safety during this time of travel. Mm -hmm. um, she excused herself from the table from my, being with my son, went upstairs and sat on the bed in our bedroom and just sort of contemplating this. And she got this clear, distinct message. It said, when are you going to do what you came here to do? Mm. Um and it's 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 the kind of bolt out of the blue kind of message that it sounds like you were kind of referring to, and that's I, I kind of I'm a bit envious because I, I would love to have, <laughs> have that kind of a clarion voice speaking to me. But what it says to me is that um, when there are times, and I think that we can actually tune ourselves to be more and more receptive to messages like that, whether it's a an auditory voice that we hear or a message from nature or as we're walking through, um, through a, a wooded path mm -hmm. or um, even in a more humble and mundane way, we open our, there's a way that we need to learn how to open ourselves to something beyond our own minds and thoughts. And that can be done through a number of different pathways. Um, you know, whether it be through sort of meditation pathway mm -hmm. or through um, a, a being in nature or maybe even through a more ecstatic physical movement kind of way. Those are all ways to, to, for us to open ourselves to um, be receptive to what we're meant to hear and learn that we in our normal conscious minds don't allow ourselves to do. Right. So if I hear you right, the three practices that can allow us to actually be more receptive to more information, <laughs> yeah. which is not backed up with data, right? Right. Uh, is either the one through meditation or two, uh, by being in connection in relation to nature or three, um, any kind of physical movement. And I, I trust that you don't say physical movement, like go play tennis, right? 
No, although who knows? Maybe someone who plays tennis could have an ecstatic physical experience. You know? But uh, yeah, I mean, when I in that third way, what I'm, what I, what I know is very powerful, and human traditions over the thousands of years have shown us this, is that, for example, if you wanted to explore that pathway, you could mm-hmm. put on some music, um, some very evocative very polyrhythmic music and just allow yourself to stand in the center of the room, hear the the beat and the rhythm and the power of that music and allow your body to begin to move to it. Not and, and to to be careful that you're not engaged in a physic in a dance routine, a familiar old dance routine that you're repeating to yourself because that's comfortable and well known. But rather you may even close your eyes, make sure no one else is watching in case you're concerned about that, and just allow yourself to move in some kind of physical, um, engage, physically engaged way. Um, and uh, what we know is that as you uh, sort of release yourself into that physical movement and give yourself fully to it over a period of time, then when you stop the music, it's not uncommon for you to experience a state of profound and beautiful stillness. Mm. And it might be in the stillness that, um, that something comes to you that you're needing to learn. Now, it's not, there, there are no guarantees for any of this, and because that's why these are called practices, <laughs> and they're not uh, quick antidotes. So whether it's through meditation or through walking in nature or through some kind of ecstatic movement, um, there is, there is, it, there is a, a, a repetitive quality to this where you stay open to, okay, I'm ready to receive what I can receive and go right. from there. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I think that's one of the precursors, right? I am ready to receive what I'm what I'm going to receive or not receive, right? And yeah. so there is a preparation of the mind. So it's not just like I'm gonna go sit for twenty minutes and meditate. Um and I'm hoping that that's gonna give me more peace, more calmness. I think there is something else that is needed yeah. before that, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's great. It all starts with uh, with a decision, I think, because if I'm if I'm if I'm in the mindset that says, well, I'm looking for the evidence that will show me that meditation or walking in nature or ecstatic movement. I'm looking for the evidence that doing those things will bring to me the kind of ima- the creativity or imagination or opening that I'm looking for. I may never experience it. I. And instead, not to say if you can't, well, let me slow myself down. If you are unwilling to release yourself from seeking the evidence, you still need the evidence, still go do those practices because I think they're good for you, you know. But but if you can start by saying, um, my decision is that this practice is valuable and that I will get good value from it. That's how you start, whether or not at the end of the practice, you say, oh, well, that was valuable to me or, or that wasn't valued to me. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It starts with a decision and to do that in a, re- in a repeating way over and over again. My sense is my invitation to anyone listening to this is that that leads to an expanded awareness of you and your place in your world and your relationship with your world. Beautiful. I appreciate that so much because I have heard statements um, when people say, I did pray to God because in India, you know, when you're having troubled times and you're playing, praying to Lord Rama and then you go and change um, gods and you say, okay, now I'm going to go pray to God, Lord Shiva, yes. or this, this temple is better for this kind of problems. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> And then, you know, the person goes to the other temple because they believe that the other temple is going to cure their problems and the other God is going to cure their problems. And then after about 10 visits, they say, oh, that God didn't help me. I'm going to go change uh, and do another practice. Yeah. This reminds me of statements also like, well, I did uh, try this, but it didn't give me anything. Yeah. 
And so that decision that you mentioned is extremely important. That decision that am I looking for evidence to do this or am I looking for the experience and I, do I believe that this brings value to me? Yeah, uh, that opens a whole new window for this conversation. <laughs> uh, I mean, here's what I mean. Um, I, I think whether you call that when you go to the different temples, you call that prayer or um, a contemplative at moment or whatever. Um, There's a real difference between what I consider to be petitioning prayer, which is I go to my altar or my temple or my God or whatever, and I ask, please, God, can you give this to me because I'm I'm enduring a difficult time and I need your help. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a very different kind of prayer from a more affirming prayer. Mm -hmm. And the affirming prayer is something like, um, I trust that what I'm experiencing is necessary. I am here to seek clarity for it and connection to whether it's to a you, my God, or to, to I'm seeking connection to a greater sense of connection to to the wider world, if you're atheist or agnostic, I'm seeking a greater connection to a felt experience of spirit, that that is, the, that is what I'm after, mm. not an answer to, can I get an A on my test tomorrow, <laughs> you know? And, and my sense is that that second kind of prayer, if you want to call it that, mm-hmm. is the... Is the place that that is more helpful to us the first kind feels very ego-based like look at little me with my little problem and give me some kind of solution Mm -hmm. rather than i just want to know you more and knowing you will serve me in a powerful way Beautiful. Thank you so much thank you for for throwing light on that (laughs) so um if for our listeners, you can share one message on what spiritual leadership and the path that you want and for this world, what would that be? Uh, the path of spiritual leadership is a path of seeing wholeness rather than separateness mm-hmm. and to understanding that each of us as individual leaders is um, uh, is. is is needs to learn how to see ourselves in the context of a wholeness as part of a wholeness as in constant relationship with our world that is that's the fundamentally most important message and that we have a a need to um work this path rather than simply sit back and hope that this path comes to us. Um, (laughs) I think there are instances where people have, in moments of crisis, experienced a transformation in that kind of way. They were hoping that something would happen, it happened, and their lives were forever changed. For many of the rest of us, though, it requires a bit of dedication and decision. And um, to me, that's, that's what we are here for. One last thing, as we're talking, you know, there's uh, others much wiser and smarter than me long before me have said, you know, we come into this world as a newborn and there is no sense of separation for a newborn between that newborn and its world. It's Mm -hmm. all just one experience. And it's not until around the age of one that we begin to develop an understanding of an object outside of ourselves thus the beginning of our separation. And we then go through life with all kinds of experiences of me and you separated from each other, but hopefully at times in relationship with each other. And as we get into, a, into adulthood and begin to question, well, what am I here for? What's my purpose? The whole point of that journey is to learn how once again to reclaim the path of um, undifferentiated wholeness again. And that is a path of of discipline and and progress. So that by the end of our lives, we've kind of come full circle in that that lifetime where we begin to understand how connected we truly are with everything in our world. I think that's our path. (laughs) Fantastic. That brings us to a great closure. Everything that we have aspired 
to become, to do, like where there's on this project in life. And suddenly at one point of time, it's like I reached this tipping point. And now my whole project is actually to return back, uh, to return to that wholeness that was present when I was less than a year old, right? Yes. Yes, I, I think so. <laughs> and so. That's a great trajectory to get onto. And so before we close this episode, one last way, like what's the first baby step that I can take to get on that trajectory to return to my wholeness? Um, it, it's going to come back to one thing I said earlier. I think we have, if we are interested in that path, we must start with shifting from evidence gathering that will show us that we're making progress as the only way and moving that to the decision process where we decide we are already on the path. We are already about to re we are in the process of receiving what we need to receive and learn. We are committed to surrendering or yielding to and allowing to come into our lives what we need to learn. So deciding that we're on the, we are on the path mm -hmm. and learning how to yield and open to what needs to come to us and then making our decisions to act based on having opened ourselves to that rather than staying in a smaller self and saying, okay, it's up to me. What do I need to do to control and manage my life and move forward? Um, that, is a, that, that is not the antidote that I would want to use. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Sam, for being here with us. And thank you especially for talking about this very precious and at the same time, a slightly difficult topic. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you very much, Deepa. I very much appreciated it. Thank you. If you like this episode, I'd appreciate if you can give some feedback by sending me an email directly at deepa at meetmypotential.com. That's D-E-E-P-A at meetmypotential.com. I look forward to talking to you in one week's time. And until then, stay cool.